When I was a kid, I would come home from school and I'd get to work on my homework. I was a very diligent student. I would do math homework. I, I know there was other subjects, but I only really remember math homework, maybe the occasional English assignment, an essay, write a little story type of thing. But I would head up to my room and I would put on a cassette tape of the Dave Clark Five. This was in the 90s and I was listening to a band from the 60s, Dave Clark Five, the band behind a lot of bangers. Glad all over, over and over. Catch us if you can, bits and pieces, because uh, feel blue when you're not around. I'm partial to their cover of Here Comes Summer, which is by Jerry Keller. All of these songs and so much more were featured on this cassette tape, which I believe was called Los Gigantes del Pop. I'm not sure why the title was in Spanish. None of the songs were. But this is what I remember. I'd come home, I'd do homework, I'd listen to this tape. Usually, I could finish all of my homework in the time it took me to listen to the tape, front and back side, somewhere in the realm of 25 to 35 songs. Then I'd be done and I'd get to go to dinner and we'd have whatever we were having for the night, tacos, pizza, whatever the case was. It was delightful. And this was just kind of the little tradition that I have. It was the way I learned was, for whatever reason, this CD just helped me laser focus. I was able to get things done. Of course, once the math started getting a little more complicated and we stopped using the tools that I would argue use more in regular life, like addition, multiplication, subtraction, that kind of stuff. Then we started looking into the complicated bits of calculus and things like that, that you're probably not going to use that often in your life. I couldn't listen to Dave Clark 5 anymore because I just couldn't focus. Calculus is is pretty hard. But this is all a long-winded way of saying that everyone learns differently. And it can be difficult for a parent, for a teacher, to hone in on that if they don't know how their children best learn and how they can have connection and empathy for the kids in their lives. And that's kind of the concept behind Seed and Sow. Alyssa Blast Campbell founded this organization to support teachers and families with the tools for regulation and connection, helping children thrive and build resilience. Alyssa is a teacher and a parent, and she wanted to create this community for parents, teachers, and caregivers to work together to raise emotionally intelligent humans. It can be tough when you have a child who's maybe just slapped you in the face for you to take a step back and be like, okay, how can I best approach the situation so that they're walking away having learned something? And I am too. Alyssa has so much good advice in here. She's teaching you some nerdy concepts, but in ways that are approachable. So you don't have to turn off your Dave Clark 5 CD tape, cassette, whatever you're listening to. Although I would recommend that because listening to a podcast while you're also listening to music, probably not the greatest thing in the world. So put Dave Clark 5 on hold. We'll queue up Put a Little Love in Your Heart, which is also a cover, a great song by Jackie DeShannon. We'll have that ready in the queue for after this episode. But first, we have a wonderful conversation with Alyssa. Can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Sure. So my name is Alyssa Blass Campbell, and I am the founder of Seed and Sew. We are here to help change the way that adults experience children's emotions. I'm not here to change kids. I'm here to shift how we experience their emotions so that we can show up with intention and, and do this work of raising emotionally intelligent humans. Um, and my master's is in early ed. I have done research in early ed, and that's where my hub is in like birth to age eight. Where did this idea come from? Because it seems like, you know, you you look at 
maybe similar-ish tools, and it's it's often looking at the kids. So why did you kind of, I mean, was that partially why you decided to, to go the opposite direction? Yeah, basically, I was teaching and working in early ed, and a lot of the resources I were I was provided was about the kids and or it would be like this really great workshop or thing I saw on social media where I'm like, yes, love that. And then in the moment, I couldn't access those words or I was actually really annoyed by this child's behavior that the Instagram post said I would be fine with and it's developmentally appropriate and blah, blah, blah. But then in the moment, I'm mad at a one-year-old or whatever. And so I realized like so much of doing this work with kids of of modeling this, of responding with intention really was coming back to me and what I was bringing to the table and everything I was carrying from my childhood and all the things I'd learned, whether I want to repeat them or not. When I opened my mouth, my mom would come out a lot of the times. And sometimes it's great, right? Like sometimes we want to carry that on. And sometimes we've spent a lot of therapy dollars trying not to pass that on and uh, trying to undo those things. And yeah, so I feel like just lived experience <laughs> led me to like, oh, wait, wait, wait. It's not about them as much as it's about us. I think one of the the things, at least that I've seen, that kind of resonated with me and, and something that I'd want to dive into a little more is the idea behind collaboration emotion processing. I, I wasn't really familiar with this term. So what is it to start and why should we care about it? Totally. It makes sense to not be familiar with it because my colleague and I made it up. It's called <laughs> Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. We call it CEP method for short, C-E-P. And it was really like us. We had come together. I was teaching infant toddler at the time. She was in preschool pre-K. We both have a master's in early ed. And we were like, man, what we really need isn't at our fingertips. Like we couldn't find the right social emotional learning program or whatever. And we kept searching and searching. And finally, we were like, let's create it. Um, so we created the SEP method as a guide for how to do this work as the adult and then ultimately how to show up with the kids. So it's five components. Uh, it's one is adult child interactions and the other four are about us not shocking after what you've learned about me so far. So um, we say people come for the kids, but they stay for themselves. It's uh, self-awareness. So building awareness of what's happening in our bodies before we're exploding. Uncovering implicit bias, which is really where we're diving into our social programming of what did we learn in childhood? How were we responded to? Were there certain ages where we were supposed to stop crying to express or we weren't allowed to express that emotion anymore? Um, all these are going to be parts of us that we bring then into adulthood. And so we dive into those as they're coming up. That's the like, oh, that kid just slapped me across the face. And right now I'm not feeling chill. I'm mad at the one-year-old. Those are the parts of me coming up in that moment there that are assigning meaning really to that behavior. And then we have uh, scientific knowledge where we're looking at what's happening on a neuroscience level for us. For the tiny humans, like when they're having a meltdown on aisle four, internally, we are also having a meltdown on aisle four. And so how, what do we do with that? How do we self-regulate so that we can co-regulate with the child? And then the last one of like our parts is like the buzzwordiest one, I feel like. It's self-care. And 
maybe it's a weekend away, but we really look at it as like the day-to-day. What are you doing all day to nurture your nervous system from prioritizing sleep to making sure you're getting enough water to not just eating your kids scraps for lunch to moving your body or taking little breaks throughout the day, setting boundaries for yourself with your kids, with everyone around you, with work, et cetera. How do you take care of your nervous system? And then that fifth component is the adult-child interactions. Okay, now we've done all that. Now, how do we respond in the moment with kids? How are we helping them uh, build these tools outside of the moment? Awesome. I think one of the, the things I always enjoy is hearing kind of the ideation of all of this because what you present to the world probably not the first draft it probably went through a lot of iterations so what were some of the other things that you kind of like thought about as as part of sap but we're we're like mm, no nah, that doesn't fit yeah for sure so yeah we actually have my team call this the shitty first draft we stole that from <laughs> Brene brown and we have a slack channel dedicated to shitty first drafts i hope i can can i swear on here Sure. Okay, great. Thanks. In that Slack <laughs> channel, it allows us to be creative, to throw out ideas and know like it's okay to have ones that aren't great. It's okay to have ones that start in a weird place and then we end up evolving them. It's okay to throw it out there and have it workshopped over and over. Like it's okay to make mistakes essentially and to not be perfect. And um so yeah, I feel like with this set method, it started in a way, you know, when so we're writing a book on it and it's publishing next year. And when we submitted the proposal to um, the publisher, they were like, yes, we want this. And it's too, quote, academic and needs <laughs> to be more, quote, accessible. And what I got from that was like, you're too nerdy. And I do feel like as it's gone through iterations over the years, even before so we created it and we researched it across the U.S. with in child care centers and with families. Um, And even through all of that, like, we are really nerdy people, Lauren and I. And so I feel like the iterations it's really gone through is, like, kind of de-nerdifying it and taking big neuroscience terms and really applying to, like, what do they look like in everyday life? Um, Yeah, I feel like that's mostly – but the core five have been there from the beginning. So the – foundations of SEP have been there from the beginning. It's really just like, how do we present it and how nerdy do we get that has evolved? Can you give us one of your favorite nerdy (laughs) concepts explained simply? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So uh, I think the one that people can get wrapped up in, we have eight sensory systems. We often think of our five senses, right? Sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. There are three more and they're often left off the table and they're so important for emotional regulation. We have proprioceptive input. Buckle up for some nerdy terms here. (laughs) (laughs) Proprioceptive is like that big body place. So, you know, when you like are really upset and you have like a deep hug with someone and there's that like release or you move your body, you go for a run, you do a workout and you feel better afterward. That's all your proprioceptive uh, system at play. And that's how we recharge our proprioceptive system are through those things. And then vestibular input is another one that's going upside down, moving the plane of your head, going on swings. My husband sits in an office chair that can like rock back and forth and bounce. And if I did that all day, I would throw up. But for him, like that feels good because he has a greater tolerance for that sort of input than I do. He needs it, in fact, to stay regulated throughout the day. And uh, then our interoceptive system is really how we're connecting like the senses we feel, the sensations inside our body to words or feelings like hungry, tired, thirsty, 
I have butterflies in my stomach. When I say that, we know like, oh, I know that feeling inside. So we use this to talk about how else can we identify what's happening inside the body to pair it with words to help kids understand, oh, this thing I'm feeling inside means I'm feeling embarrassed or I'm feeling sad or disappointed. We want to expand it beyond butterflies in your stomach to other emotions as well. Um, but those are that's like a little snapshot into some nerdiness where we had to like veer away from things like getting vestibular input and talk about things like doing down dog <laughs> this this is a, a complete uh side tangent but for that last one who i've already forgotten the name of it <laughs> exactly i remembered vestibular but that, that last one it's is that kind of the same sort of aura and i was just having this conversation with someone else how often if you were to throw up and someone else was in the room they would get that feeling as well. Is that kind of the same sort of, mm. does that encompass the same type of thing? Just talking about it, I, f- I can already feel my stomach like rising. So I hope <laughs> no one else is, is as sensitive as I am. <laughs> totally. So almost like, oh, if somebody talks about lice and you're like, I'm itchy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it can be. What we want to tune into really though is like connecting those sensations. So the sensations inside of like, oh, I'm now my stomach is churning. I feel like I'm going to vomit would be that connectivity. That's where we're talking about the interoceptive system. Really just noticing what's happening inside of our bodies. The like mirroring of it can be it could be the smell, it can be the sound, it can be the association of the smell and the sound and the experience of like, oh, it makes me want to. Those are often connected to our other senses. Okay. That's good question. That's fair. Yes. I, yeah, hopefully no one is feeling sick. Now this part. <laughs> you're welcome. I, I apologize. <laughs> you say you're welcome. I apologize. <laughs> so, for early childhood educators, obviously the pandemic throws a, a big old wrench into things i mean it's it's uh, almost i'd say almost as overused as the little miss memes lately that have been popping up everywhere uh by although i should probably think of when this is going live that might be a very outdated reference but either way either way we could leave it at the little miss memes of the summer that'll cover us. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a i guess a two-part question here what's something that the pandemic sort of you know, forced more educators to do that you think is a positive trend? And then where's an area that still is kind of a challenge and we still need to overcome? Yeah, so I think they're actually the same thing. Um, It forced early educators to leave the field when we had been underpaid and overworked for so long and under-resourced and now, so we redeemed essential workers, right? Like right out the gates. All of a sudden, the nation was like, oh, wait, we need you to function. And our <laughs> everybody has to go to work and we need you for that. And still, we're going to pay you $12 an hour and you'll have an unpaid lunch and no PTO and no benefits. And Right? And so it it's shining a, a bright light on things that we already knew in early ed um, and that we'd been struggling with. And it encouraged early educators to take a step back, to acknowledge their burnout, to no longer accept uh, that pay, that way of life, uh, those work boundaries, and which is putting the country in crisis mode right now because now folks are leaving the workforce, predominantly women, and because they don't have access to childcare. It's, it's, I think, bringing to the surface a problem that has 
been under the surface for far too long. And my hope and what I'm seeing on a systems level are states actually having the conversations we needed to be having decades ago about how to subsidize early childhood educator pay, how to support early childhood educators in getting the qualifications to be in the field to um, receive higher pay, right? So like I have a master's in early ed and I had to leave the field because I couldn't afford to have a master's in early ed. And like, that's a problem. We should, if if we had like K through 12 teachers, for instance, you're expected to have a degree in the field and you're paid accordingly. And we didn't have that in early ed. Essentially, um, if you were going to have any student loans, you weren't going to be able to afford to teach anymore, which is a broken system in and of itself. So I think the problem is also the solutions. I'm really excited for the future of early ed and it is really uncomfortable right now as we're in the in-between of states figuring out what it looks like to do things like fund early childhood educator pay and um, doing things like subsidized housing or subsidizing their um, college tuition to get degrees in early ed. So as we're in sort of this in-between place, what are some tips that maybe people that, that, that not from like a funding perspective, how can they support early childhood educators? Yeah. Um, legislature always, local legislature always, always, always. And we often look on a national level far too often um, when most of the things that have impact in your community happen in your community. So looking at who are your legislatures, what is proposed? For instance, in Vermont, we have an organization called Let's Grow Kids and another organization called Building Bright Futures. And both are organizations that are working to propose legislature for the upcoming session. And they are really loud about what they're proposing. And for parents who are in need of care and for educators who want this pay to say, hey, yeah, we need this and we support this and to call your legislatures, uh, to call your representatives and say, hey, this is where I stand, would love to enter the field again. This is what we need to do so. Um Putting pressure on them, essentially, using your voice at a local level is is what I would do. And if you're an early childhood educator and you are in the field right now and you're trying to stay in the field, I say cheers and kudos. And your self-care is so crucial in this time where staffing is hard and um, we're at a breaking point. And we actually, we have a professional development program for teachers and a membership program where we support them in an ongoing fashion, because I think one of the problems is that we're in silos in early ed a lot of the time without a support system behind us. Um, so figuring out what does your support system look like and who do you lean on uh, is going to be really huge and setting those boundaries for you to be able to live a life outside of work. We've talked about self-care mm-hmm. a couple times now. Do you have, I was like asking this because I think, again, the pandemic probably introduced some new hobbies to people. So do you have kind of a quirky self-care method that you found has worked well? No. <laughs> no, I would say like my self-care really is like, Alyssa, drink enough water throughout the day, eat enough food, pause after I put my child down for nap. And instead of going and doing my to-do list, like literally pause for five minutes and close my eyes and just breathe, like recharge my own batteries throughout the day in a number of different ways, whether it's that movement, the food, sleep, 
or truly like shutting the system down to plug in and recharge there. Uh, Yeah, I I actually don't want to overcomplicate self-care. Right at the start of the pandemic, I got a putting green randomly, and I think that was a nice little... Because, yeah, it was a good excuse to get up from the the computer and just kind of take a break. Yeah. Uh, And then occasionally my small dog, who's a chihuahua dachshund mix, would try to eat one of the golf balls. And I was like, that's not food. (laughs) But I love that. It's play, right? Like you're recharging your batteries through play. And I think that's rad. My play is largely with my tiny human at this point, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, that's a good good play as well. Mine is also a nice, uh, I guess, um, closure that I could never be a professional golfer. So it's good. It's good to know I didn't pursue, didn't waste time pursuing that career. <laughs> One of the other things that I wanted to chat about was the seed certification, which is a seed and sow exclusive, mm-hmm. similar to SEP in, mm-hmm. in that you created it. But uh, can you give us kind of the background of where that came from and what people can expect? Yeah, so that is that that um, professional development program I was just kind of talking about there with teachers. It came about because it's what I needed as a teacher. I found myself like going to workshops or conferences and getting really fired up and then going back into the classroom and like then I have questions and then I need support implementing it. Like when I'm sitting in a room without kids all over my body screaming at me or hitting me across the face, everything sounds so nice. And then in the implementation is where I needed support. And so for the seed certification, it's really the foundation of professional development that I would love every early childhood educator to have. It dives into the nerdiness and the neuroscience and what's going on for us, what's going on for the tiny humans, really understanding our behavior and theirs, and then how to respond with intention. And then my favorite part is this ongoing support. We have a teacher membership community where we're engaging teachers on a daily basis. They can ask questions at any point, like, oh man, this kid just slapped me across the face. I need help. Or we're having this ongoing challenge with this child who's biting and we've tried all these things. We can't figure it out. We need to troubleshoot it. Uh, Or I'm having a hard time setting boundaries with my administrator. I feel like I'm getting emails on Sunday night at 8 p.m. and I'm expected to respond. Do you have any tips? So we're just guiding teachers through this on a day-to-day, giving them a village to lean on. And it's truly, it's what I needed. It's what I needed as a teacher. And then we give our parents of all those classrooms access to our Tiny Humans, Big Emotions parent program so that they can be doing this work as well. Lovely. Yeah, I feel the same way anytime I go to any kind of event. I'm like, yes, yes. And then I get back to where I could apply it. And I was like, wait a minute. What what comes next? Yeah, now my hand <laughs> is in the air. <laughs> what are the other questions I always like to ask? And I say it's because it's less work for me. Is a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And so how do you do this work? with kids without sounding like you're reading straight from a script? This is something that, yeah, I wish we talked more about. What does it look like to not be reading from a script? Just the other day, my husband walked in and I was crying and he was like, oh, you look sad. And I was like, no shit. Is it the tears coming down my face? Like that doesn't feel connect. It was like, he was like, I'm supposed to say something. What am I supposed to say? All right. I know I'm not supposed to try and make it go away. I'm not supposed to make it like get better or whatever. So what do I say? And it was like, he was reading from a script. I was like, that could have been one of our posts on Instagram. Like I 
felt inside like disconnected from him in that moment. And I know his intention was to connect. And I think we do this with kids all the time as teachers, as parents, as caregivers, where our goal is to connect with them in their hard thing. But we end up saying like, oh, it looks like you feel or you sound X. It's like, yeah, because I'm screaming in your face. You're right. I am frustrated. And instead, I just want to truly look at like, where's this coming from? What are they experiencing right now? Like, oh, that person just came over and took Jonah's spatula that he was playing with and ran away. He's mad. Like, I would be mad if that was happening, too. If I was cooking breakfast and my husband came up and took the spatula out of my hand and left and all of a sudden I didn't have a spatula and my eggs are burning. Like, yeah. That's annoying. And so really what I want to do is find that connection, empathize and connect over what they're experiencing rather than looking for the perfect words because the perfect words don't matter and it's going to be somebody else's cultural context that you're bringing into play. My words that I use on a daily basis might be different than the ones used in your household or in somebody else's culture. And so I really want to lean into just connecting over the experience instead, which takes a minute because we have to pause and be like, all right, what are they experiencing? We don't have to say, I condone it. I agree with it. You should feel this way. We're saying, I get it. When actually it was just writing about this in our book that the, someone had brought up, um, a childhood was building with their, with blocks and a sibling came in and knocked them down. And she went in to empathize and was like, oh, but that's so frustrating. At least you can build them again. Like they're blocks. We can build it again. And it like snapped me back to, I had just folded all the laundry in our living room and piles around the couch. And my toddler came in and destroyed all of my piles. And I was like, I can't imagine if someone was like, don't worry, Alyssa, you can fold it all again. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, great. Don't want to. Like, that's not (laughs) helpful, you know? And in actuality, what I want them to say is like, man, that sucks. You folded all that laundry and your toddler came in so curious and destroyed it all. You don't have to make it better. You don't have to make it go away. You're just saying, I get it. I see what happened. Um, And we're connecting over that. We're connecting over the feeling, not why they're feeling it, not condoning behavior. We're saying, I understand that feeling. That hit a little close to home because my dog knocked over a pile of laundry <laughs> recently. And it's 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 my fault for not putting it away and expecting her to not, you know, go haywire. It is and, still annoying. Oh, no, yes. I'm like, you yeah. could have sat anywhere on the couch. <laughs> Why did you choose here? There's one file of clothes. Fine. Totally. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Some of the guests that are on here are also authors. You're in the process of mm-hmm. becoming one as you're working on this book. And I think it's always interesting to chat just about the process of writing mm-hmm. and, and outlining and all that. Maybe a little bit different since it's – I would hope that there's probably not a ton of fiction. Uh, in no, it's book. not fiction. It's yeah. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe you have like an example or something that's made it, but I would I would imagine it's it's primarily a nonfiction process. So that can look different between someone you know writing like a murder mystery versus versus uh, something that's more educational like this. But what's your sort of writing process like? I know you were saying before this you were kind of in the the world of bookland. Mm-hmm. Is that have you found that's better to just like block out a chunk of time and go go haywire? Yeah, it's how I'm most creative. Like. If I have an hour and then I'm interrupted by something or I have to jump into a meeting, I can't really dive in. I can do edits like that, um, but I can't dive in and get creative and really think about like, what do I want people to take away from this and how do I best communicate that? So for me, yeah, it's chunks of time that I have to reserve in my schedule and that's looked different at different stages. There were times like pre-kid that 
it was so easy to black out chunks of time <laughs> and it's harder now. Um, but that I have to prioritize. And then I, I, one of my challenges and gifts is that I'm writing with this, with my co-author Lauren, we co-created the method and we're writing together. And so it's, but we write from a place of story. We write from sharing examples, from seeing what do these things really look like. And um, like the example of laundry uh, is in there. And, it, that's interesting of like figuring out the voice and who's writing what stories, where, when, how, and how do we divide that up has been something to navigate, but also awesome because I can pop in. I'm like, oh, a whole chapter of the book was just written while I was sleeping or doing nap time or whatever. And uh, then I get to go in and pop in my stories and edits and things like that and tag teaming, but creating space for me to or carving out space to be creative is so important for me. And are you, because I, I know a lot of writers like to preach at least, you know, at least get in there and write a little bit, like 15 minutes a day. It sounds like for you, it's more of a, a chunk of time. So are you, I guess, like, do you try to pigeonhole a, like a set amount of time per week? Or is it like, hey, I've got a burst of creativity. I'm a run with it and maybe try and like block out some other things that might pop up. Yeah. So I actually do best if I take time away from it and then I come back. Like if I'm in it every day, it starts to blur. Uh, versus if I take, if I come back to it, I like get new perspective. I can see it a little differently. Um, and yeah, I, it's like bursts of creativity, but honestly, mostly it's like, where can I fit in chunks of time to write as a working parent? And like, that's it go, Alyssa. Like I have learned things that set me up for success, like having those chunks in the like nine to two part of the day is best for me. That's when I'm most creative. It's when I'm most resourced from like a sleep and energy perspective. And I know there are some people that can like wake up early or like stay up and write after bedtime. And like that doesn't work for me. So carving out times in the middle of the day that are chunks is how I best get the work done. And sometimes for me, that means doing other tasks after bedtime or at times where I've like moved I, I, in order to carve out that chunk of time, then like moving those other things that don't require my creative, like creative brain in the same way. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm a similar way. I can, but there's been times where I'm like, I'm gonna get up and do you know, I've got like four things I need to, to knock out yeah. from creatively. And yeah. then it's like 10 o'clock and I have maybe done one of them. I was like, <laughs> well, that all took longer than I thought it would. So it is it is a process. And I I try to stress that with other people who are maybe, uh, I don't want to say less creative, but not doing as much creative work. I think it is important to like, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen the cartoons where it's like someone like laying down on the ground and someone's like, I thought you're you're being creative. And it's like, I am like, this is part of the process. I need to like, like you said, like step away from it. Yeah. I need to curl up in a ball and weep or, you know, whatever, whatever your creative process is. But it does take time and it's hard to just like churn out creativity. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, you're almost off the hook here. But we always <laughs> like to wrap up with a top I'm happy three. to hang with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're far too kind. <laughs> We always like to wrap up with a top three. And for you, it's your top three jobs. If you didn't have the one that you had. I would work in neuroscience, whether it's a neuroscientist or like occupational therapist for kids, which is like, I guess, closely related uh, on the periphery of what I do. 
my number two. If money wasn't an issue, one of my favorite jobs I ever had was a waitress. I got to meet new people every day and hear their stories. Are we talking like local restaurant or like mm-hmm. national train? Okay, nice. nice. Mm-hmm. And number three, it's hard to pick this one. I'm like going between a couple. <laughs> uh, <laughs> number three, I my like dream is to have a job that I don't think about after work. Right? So like running my own business is the opposite of that. <laughs> Where you're thinking about it all the time. I loved being a nanny, but I would accept a, a number of jobs where like I would go, I would take care of kids and I would leave. And I didn't think about it again until I went back to work. Like there wasn't something I could do outside of that, whatever. I didn't have to prep anything. There was no planning. Whereas like as a teacher, I always had prep and planning and stuff I could be doing. So a job where you just like, where I, and not to say nannying was easy, but I liked that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I remember this was, I think, shortly after I graduated college, I was interviewing for a job. And one of kind of the perks that the interviewer was saying was like, at five o'clock, you leave. He's like, yeah, you just done. leave everything here. You're done. Like, we'll often go out for dinner or happy hour or whatever. And at the time, I was kind of like, oh, that's that's weird that he's highlighting that so much. But then now now that I've had you know, over a decade of a, a working career, I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I yeah, that's actually Alyssa's that. dream yeah. job. I don't yeah. even care what it is. Like, that's my dream job. <laughs> well, you're moving to Torrance, California. That's <laughs> done <was>. and done. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alyssa, this was fantastic. Uh, I feel like I've learned at least three new vo- vocabulary words. <laughs> Vestibular is uh, the top one. Absolutely. If people want to learn more about what you're doing about scene and set, where can they find you? Yeah, um, our Instagram, I'm pretty active over there at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Um, I just started a TikTok Ooh. to connect with hashtag the kids. Um, <laughs> and we also just started a Twitter to connect with the opposite of the kids. And um, we have a website that has everything at it. So seedandso.org is the hub. When you get there, you get to choose like parent, teacher, state agency, provider, who are you? And then it takes you to where our resources are for you. Um, we have a podcast, Voices of Your Village podcast, that has just hundreds of episodes to dive into on this work. Um, yeah. Lovely. Well, lots of good stuff to check out. Thank you again for taking the time to chat. This is awesome. Thanks for hanging out with me. Of course, and we got to end with a corny joke, as we always do. What's the difference between a teacher and a train? I don't know. A teacher tells you to spit your gum out, but a train says, chew, chew. <laughs> Good after it's people. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. (laughs) 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.